Timothy. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, that would be great. Uh, Romans 1, we are beginning a series walking through the New Testament book of Romans. Let me also mention this up front. This morning we have some technical difficulties with our side screens. And so none of the content has been up there this morning. It's not going to be in this service. So you might want to follow along in a Bible or your device. And uh, some of the quotes I use, you're just going to have to listen because they won't be up there. But Romans, we're starting today. Uh, Augustine, who is a famous theologian and church father, was known in his younger days for being incredibly wild. He was the wild child uh, of the century he lived in. He was um, literally converted simply by the reading of the book of Romans. Just reading it converted his heart. Immediately he changed. Uh, Martin Luther was so rocked by the words in Romans that it inspired the 95 Thesis and is what is responsible for launching the Reformation. Uh, John Wesley, the greatest revivalist in the history of the world, credits a hearing of the reading of Romans to what inspired his revivals. Uh, when I look at my own personal library and I, I look at all the volumes that I have, I have more volumes on the book of Romans than any other book of the Bible in my library. And there's something that's really fascinating about it. It's not a book. It's a letter. Romans is a letter. It's a letter that is written by one man to a group of people living in another place. It's a letter. I, so I just want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the last letter that you wrote. Think about the last, maybe, note card that you wrote. Think about the last email you sent or the last thing you posted on Facebook or maybe you don't want to think about that, but think about it. Think about the last thing you wrote. Can you imagine people, famous people, remarkable people, brilliant people, for centuries claiming that what you wrote transformed their lives? Um, I've had people talk about things that I have said and written plenty of times, um, but never quite like this, if you know what I mean, right? A few years back, I was uh, giving a message on Paul's teaching regarding singleness, and the title of the sermon was, So What If You're Single? And one of the ideas that I was presenting was that marriage is really a, a Christian's second choice. And, uh, and Paul's teaching is pretty obvious on singleness being advantageous for particular reasons, but he basically says, but if you can't keep your loins from, from burning, well, then go ahead and get married, you know, like then you, then you go ahead and get married, but singleness is first. And uh, before you fill my inbox with hate mail, let me just tell you, I'm still sorting through the stuff I got when I wrote it back then. Uh, it was hilarious. And it was all married people. They were like, you told me I chose second. I'm like, you're the one who couldn't keep your loins from burning. It's not my fault. It's yours, Right. The single people in my life, they were like, thank you so much. I was just trying to validate where they were in their lives. And, and, and we know what that's like, right? We know when you posted something on Facebook or you sent that email and you accidentally clicked reply all or, uh, or you wrote that letter and, and everyone's talking about it afterward. The impact is big, just not what you thought it would be. Imagine just the opposite. Imagine people saying it's the greatest explanation of the gospel of Jesus and how to live life with God that's ever been written. Imagine that. That's exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to a group of people in Rome, and that's what took place. The scholar, theologian N.T. Wright, one of my favorites, said this about the book of Romans. He said that it is neither a systematic theology nor a summary of Paul's life work, but it is by common consent his masterpiece, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Not all onlookers have viewed it in the same light or from the same angle, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unalike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up at sheer sides, and there is frequent disagreement on the best approach 
But what nobody doubts is that we are here dealing with a work of massive substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge while offering a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision. I love the language of that, that it is a formidable intellectual challenge and offers a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision. Let me just tell you this, though. Our reason for walking through Romans together is not because of its intellectualism, but because of the transforming message of faith and life that it impresses on every person who reads it. For every person who ever asks questions, Romans has answers. For every person who ever longs for meaning, Romans, it provides it. For anyone who has ever desired some sort of faith relationship with God that would actually touch down in real time in our life, Romans actually shows us the pathway towards that kind of life. So I want you to imagine this with me. I want to back up and really set the context for what we're reading so that we, we clearly understand what's going on here. I want you to imagine that, that Paul wrote this letter to a group of people. These are just regular people living in a city. He had never been there. He had actually never met them. He had simply heard of them. And so he writes them this letter. And they're just regular people. These are, these are people that are single and they're married and some of them have kids and some of them don't. And uh, some of them were working good jobs and making money, but probably most of them were not. Some were soldiers, some were business owners. There were men, there were women, there were children. Some had a past and some of that past was really religious and some of that past was really irreligious, but they had a past. But now they had hopes for the future and this group of people living in Rome, they had heard about the message of Jesus. They'd heard about this Savior. And they'd begun the journey. They'd made the decision to become Jesus followers. But they weren't very far down that road. And there was this question of, is there more to this Christian life? Is there more that we should understand? Maybe like us, they thought those kinds of things. And so they're gathering during this time. As they first began to become the church of Rome, they would gather together. And then they would scatter into the neighborhoods and the marketplaces. They would, they would meet in homes and in halls and they would see each other in the market and in the streets and while dropping their kids off at school and they had mutual friends and they shared meals together. They were doing life the best they could. And then one day, this letter gets delivered out of the blue from this person named Paul. You've never met him, but you've heard of him. He delivers this letter to you and they all gather around to hear this letter being read. And it sounded a bit like this. Paolo servo de Cristo Jesu, apostolo per vacazione, pescelto per aniosare, il Vangelo di Dio, che egli aviva promesso per mezzo Deo, suo profeti nel Sacre Scrittura. Okay, wait, actually that's not what they read. Because that's Italian. And even though Rome is in Italy, the people spoke Greek. In fact, Julius Caesar's last words, I'm going to ruin some of you right now, his last words were not a tu brute. They were actually recorded as kai su technon, Greek for and you also. See, the Romans spoke Greek. The Romans read in Greek, and the Apostle Paul wrote 
in Greek, which is really important to understand, and here's why. First, it's really important for this reason. We need to understand that anytime we pick up an English version of any Bible, if it's written in English, it is a translation. That means somebody looked at the Greek language and somebody looked at the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, and they made decisions based on the context and their intellect and their knowledge on what words should be used in English to describe what was happening in Greek, for example. So that's the first thing you have to understand. But secondly, I believe there's a bit of a conspiracy in the New Testament. And I have to say there's a conspiracy because Rome is always the center of conspiracy theories, right? Just ask Tom Hanks. He'll tell you that, right? (laughs) Maybe less conspiracy. Maybe this is an omission. Maybe it's a subconscious omission. But in either case, there's a fascinating detail that is omitted from the English translation of the New Testament. It says one thing in Greek, and it says another thing in English. And this omission, in my opinion, has serious consequences. What we miss, and I mean this, this is from my heart, what we miss might be why we miss so much of the life-transforming faith that impacted Paul and impacted this early Roman church. In fact, This one little detail, this little nuance makes such a difference that that I think some of you today, when you understand this, you're going to walk out and you're going to go, I didn't really understand that this is fully what Christianity was all about. Some of you might walk out today and you're like, I didn't realize that's what I joined. Some of you might be so uncomfortable, you think, I don't know if, I don't know if that I could be a Christian. Maybe you're here exploring and you go, I don't know if I could be a Christian based on this. But for others of you, this might also explain why it seems like for you sometimes somebody has dumped all the puzzle pieces of faith onto the table and you've been trying to rearrange them and it just doesn't seem to come together and ever make that full picture. And so maybe for you today when you walk out, you know what it really means to be a Christian for the first time. This this one detail might be why this faith in Jesus is so remarkable and so unique and so transforming. So we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter one, and it's in the third English word of the first verse that we find the controversy. It's in the fifth English word of the seventh verse that we actually see the relevance to us today, and I'll get to that a little later. But first, let's begin by reading verse one of Romans chapter one. says, Paul, A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point out that Paul begins with a metaphor. Now, um, you guys are all smart, and you know the purpose of similes or metaphors is to take a, a simple concept and make it more understandable for us, for something to come to life. Um, we have a word picture, and then we understand what something might be. So, for example, if somebody says that a person has eyes like saucers, it doesn't mean they have eyes that are physical saucers. It means they have large eyes, if that makes sense, right? Or uh, when Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage, you could imagine like watching a person's life being lived out on a stage in front of you. Uh, somebody says that something is hotter than a firecracker. You immediately know, like, ooh, that's, that is hot. There's something very hot going on there. So they, they help make sense of things. Um, there are some metaphors that don't make sense. 
I said one of these last week. I actually said, I'm sweating like a pig. And then I thought about it and I thought, do pigs sweat? And so like later that day, I looked it up. Sure enough, they don't. Why do we say that? Why do we say we sweat like pigs when pigs don't sweat? And I always say it when I'm sweating. So I don't get that. Or um, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. When was the last time you ate horse on purpose? He might've done it on accident sometime, but not on purpose, right? I've never been so hungry. I think, you know what? I think some stallion sirloins sound good right now. You know, it's like grill them up on the grill. Get that horse over here, right? So metaphors, right? They, they paint a picture. Paul starts this letter with a metaphor, a single word. It paints a picture, but like these last two that I just gave you, it doesn't make sense. It actually doesn't make sense, and you're going to see why. Here it is again. Let me read verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we, we call ourselves all sorts of things as we relate to Jesus. Followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Um, the Bible uses lots of different titles. The one we tend to use more often than other is the word Christian. Interestingly enough, the word Christian appears in the New Testament only three times. Three times. There are numerous other words used to describe the relationship we have with Jesus what it means to be a follower of him. But there is one word that is used significantly more, overwhelmingly more than any other word in the Bible to describe what those who follow Jesus are called. And it's the metaphor that Paul chooses here to explain his relationship with Jesus. Over 124 times compared to three for Christian, this word that is translated servant in Romans chapter one is the word that is used. And when the people of Rome received this letter, the second word they saw in the Greek language was the word doulos. Doulos, Paul, doulos. But here's the amazing thing. It doesn't mean servant. And it would have immediately jumped off the page at them. This word would have struck them in the face. It would have been hotter than a firecracker, if you will, right? This word was controversial. This word meant something for the readers. When they saw Paul, doulos of Christ Jesus, they knew exactly what it meant. And it wasn't servant the way that our translators have translated it. Over and over again, we see this word translated servant, but it's not what it means. And I believe that this has led to significant misunderstanding of the Christian faith. In fact, I'm about to say something that might sound really extreme, but I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I've thought about this over and over again. The missing of this metaphor has resulted in us missing what I believe is the most significant concept in personal discipleship to Jesus. And it's the one metaphor that is the most difficult for us in our society today to comprehend. I cannot stress for you enough about how confrontational this word is and the fact that we have softened its blow. A doulos was not a hired servant who could come and go as he pleased. A doulos is a person who had been purchased. They'd been bought. And once they'd been bought, they became their master's possession. A doulos, in every sense of the word, is a slave. It's a slave. In biblical and classical literature, the word doulos always means slave. There's literally no debate about this in the academic community. 
which is just mind-blowing because here you have Paul, a Roman citizen. He's been classically educated. He's got the finest rabbinical teaching. On a status level, he's higher than the vast majority, if not everybody, of the people that he's writing to in the city of Rome. His social rank was way higher, and yet he begins by saying, I, Paul, a slave of Jesus. A slave of Jesus. It's interesting because the, the, the idea of a doulos in scripture is always connected to another descriptive word. It's connected to the word kurios. It means Lord, kurios. In the New Testament, there are three ways to use the word kurios. There's a simple common usage that's like a greeting towards two individuals meeting each other on the street, like a, a, a polite sir. There's kurios, which is the supreme use of it, which is towards a sovereign God who rules everything. Kurios is the name above every other name. Philippians 2.9 uh, is the name given to Jesus, kurios, Lord Jesus. But the third and common usage of the term kurios in ancient Greek was the idea of a slave owner. Um, when I was a kid, um, I started going to a martial arts class with my, with my, my older brother. And, uh, and it was like fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And I just tell you this, so don't mess with me ever. Because, right, I mean, you take karate until you're in sixth grade, you know a few things. And so uh, I'm a lethal walking weapon, but... Um, it was a really interesting karate school. It started with my brother and another guy named Bryant. And then myself and a few others began to join in. And the, the sensei, the teacher, I, I'm kidding you not, he was in the witness protection program. And, uh, and this is a true story. And he had cleaned up his life. And uh, while in the witness protection program, started this karate school. And, uh, and it was unlike other schools because he wanted to teach biblical discipleship alongside of the discipline of karate. And so in, in addition to learning all of the karate that we were learning, we also had to memorize scriptures and we had to learn theology. And, and we had geese just like every other karate school and we had patches for our school. And on our patches, there was this phrase, Christos Kurios, Christ, slave owner. When I was in fourth grade, I was wearing a uniform that said, I'm a slave to Jesus. Paul makes it clear he's not just a servant, but a slave, and that Jesus is the master. And as difficult as that might be for you and I to wrap our brains around, as confrontational as it might be, the moment you begin to understand this, it's like a key that unlocks all of these other things that you see him writing about. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, he says this, for you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Or Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. When Paul is describing our condition uh, before we become enlightened by faith, our condition before we become followers of Jesus and our fallen nature, he describes us as slaves to sin. This language is, is everywhere. And you see what he's saying, you were bought, you were purchased. And as soon as these Romans saw this word, doulos, they knew exactly what it meant. They knew exactly about slavery. Some of them had been slaves. Some of them probably were slaves in that moment. They knew about slavery. But we can guarantee this, that nowhere in their pursuit of meaning, nowhere in their pursuit of life or hope or fulfillment or peace was this idea that slavery would ever be a pathway to what they were looking for. 
In fact, it was just the opposite of this. I mentioned earlier that, that the, the relevance of this was found in the fifth word of the seventh verse. The fifth word of the seventh verse is to all those in Rome. It's the word Rome. Roman society was uh, the first society, one of the first societies to offer rights to its citizens. Citizenship mattered. In fact, the apostle Paul was a Roman citizen and when he was on trial in Judea, he actually invoked his Roman citizenship in order to be released from the trial that he was in. Your rights had power. Your rights were meaningful. In Rome, the individual mattered and individual freedoms mattered. Remarkably similar to our culture. So nowhere in their vocabulary, nowhere in their thinking, nowhere in their ideology was this thought that they would choose to become slaves. Nowhere could slavery lead to freedom. And now you get this letter from this guy you've heard about, and he sends it to you and your friends, and you're gathering around reading it, and he says, oh, you want freedom. You guys, are, you guys are looking for purpose. You guys are looking for meaning. You're looking for depth to life. You really want to make a difference in this world. And then he pulls out the handcuffs and hands them to him and says, this is what leads to life. Slavery to Jesus. Do you realize the audacity of this? The metaphor doesn't make sense. It's upside down and backwards. And it's the same in our culture. It's why we have chosen the word servant over and over again rather than slave, even though everyone in scholarship knows what doulos means. Because the idea of genuine submission, the, the idea of us relinquishing our will, the idea of us giving up our rights or, or control of our lives, it's nowhere in our thinking. And yet that's exactly what Paul says leads to life. I think it's fairly critical that we pause here and we point out something about the human experience or the human reality. Um, Bob Dylan wrote a song. Some of us are old enough to, to remember this song or we've heard it. Some of us don't know who Bob Dylan is and I recognize that. But Bob Dylan had a lyric in one of his songs, I think his early 70s. And he said, you're gonna have to serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. And over and over again, he keeps saying, you're gonna have to serve somebody. We all become slaves to someone or something as humans. Why? Because we have purpose in our hearts. We have intention that is, that is woven into the fabric of our souls. And so every human being, we have to live for something. We have to live for someone. Something has to capture our imagination. Something has to hold our affection. We have to pledge our allegiance to something. And whatever that thing is, eventually when we give ourselves to it, we become a slave of that thing. Now, we, we may not use that language, but that doesn't make it less true. Just because we don't say it that way doesn't mean it's not true. We have this very astute way of hiding these things in language that covers up what's really going on. Our vocabulary tends to be filled with things like dreams and purposes and hopes and desires and ambition and very florally language. But what often is that covering? It's covering the things that are holding us captives, the thing that we're bond in bondage to. Nowhere do we ever talk about how our actual fulfillment or our actual satisfaction or our actual realization of what we're looking for being found in our slavery to Christ. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about it. And then yet, interestingly enough, we also don't find what we're looking for. Of the 124 times that doulos is translated in the New Testament, only once is it translated correctly as slave. Why? Because we like servant better because servants are hired and they're not owned. 
Because servants, they have autonomy. They can quit. They can go work for somebody else. But slaves, they're property. And they're bound to the owner. This past week, I was speaking at a... um, at a leadership conference of sorts, corporate leadership conference, outside the church, non-church event. Sometimes I do those. It was actually really interesting because they, um, they had all of these really fascinating people that were speaking at it, um, and I was not one of them. So there was Brian Canlis, who owns Canlis Restaurant in Seattle, was one of the speakers. Amazing restaurant, amazing restaurant owner, really great guy. Um, there's the, uh, the Navy pilot who has the most flight hours of any pilot in Navy history, who actually sits on the front row most Sundays. His name is Greg. He's not here today, but um, it's probably good I'd embarrass him by saying that. But he was one of the speakers. Um, Tatiana McFadden, uh, the most decorated Paralympian in history, she spoke. Um, there were some great like psychologists that spoke. There was a woman who was the runner-up on season seven of Alone that show on History Channel. Like, I met her, hung out with her for a few hours. She's crazy and fun. All these crazy people. So then I get up to speak, and literally, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm the most boring person on the planet. I actually opened up by saying, if you find me interesting, I'm sorry, because you must live a horribly boring life if I'm interesting after all of this. Um, but I got up, and I spoke, and, and before I spoke, I was working with this guy named Adam, and Adam was, like, the guy that helped me get my mic in the right spot, and he was going over my content with me, and just, he was kind of being friendly and chatting with me different things, and so we had hung out probably 30 or 40 minutes, and I get up, and I do my talk, really boring talk, very non-interesting talk. I come back down, and it was one of those times I just want to find the nearest exit and get out, but I had to wait till a break to do it. And so I'm just sweating like a pig. And I, uh, <laughs> I didn't plan that. Uh, so I go over and, and I, I sit down at this table and I'm just waiting for the break. I'm like, just get me out of here. I'm so boring. So not interesting. Why did I say yes to this? And then the break comes and I'm like, get my stuff and go. And Adam makes a beeline for me. And he comes over and he goes, I didn't realize it. He goes, I saw your name. It didn't really mean anything to me. I'm like, that's because I'm not interesting. Like, what's Brad like? Brad is just Brad, you know, like boring as can be, right? So, so he goes, I didn't think anything of it. He goes, then you got talking and about five minutes into your talk, I realized you used to be my pastor. He goes, 20 years ago, he goes, I was a part of the first church you started. I was, I was 40 or t- 27 years old when I started it. He goes, I was a part of that church. My girlfriend and I met there. Like, wait, I remember when you and your family packed up and you moved to New York. Like, he goes, and so there was this great moment of, of being reunited. So we spent the next, like, several hours through the course of the rest of this time just reacquainting with each other. And at one point, he found out about me moving here two and a half years ago. And, and just this, I'm just sharing this for a strange reason, but... I took a long ways to get here. Sorry about that. He looked at me and he goes, hey, was that good for you and your family? Was it a good move for you to go to Beaverton? And I, I hitched for a second and I kind of looked at him and I paused and I said, Adam, because of your faith and because I know where you are, I feel like I can, I can tell you this honestly. I said, it wasn't about whether or not it was good or bad for my family. It was about obedience to my master. Whether or not I was supposed to do this or not was dependent on him, not the circumstances around it. Romans is a letter written from one slave to a bunch of other slaves. That's what this letter is. Paul got it. Now he's writing to these people trying to convince them that they've been bought with a price and that everything they really are longing for will be found inconceivably when they lean into their slavery to the master. By the way, can I just point this out? Notice that it's slavery to Christ. It's slavery to Jesus. It's not slavery to religion. It's not slavery to rules or rites or rituals. 
It's slavery in the context of a relationship, and that relationship is with Jesus. You're his slave. I love this from Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite Scottish pastors from the turn of the last century. He wrote this. He said, the true position then for a man is to be God's slave. Absolute submission, unconditional obedience on the slave's part and on the part of the master, complete ownership, the right to life and death, the right of disposing of all goods, the right of issuing commandments without reason, the right to expect that those commandments shall swiftly, unhesitatingly be completely performed. For brethren, such submission, absolute and unconditional, the blending and absorption of my own will and his will is the secret of all that makes manhood glorious and great and happy. <laughs> I love that. The secret to happiness is the blending and absorption of my will with his will. This idea of slavery to Christ has radical implications on how we think and how we live. And the reason we don't experience this, the reason we don't get on the other side of this is because most often we haven't taken the position or the posture, the seat of a slave. So you say, how do you do that? How do you become a slave, a doulos of Jesus? It's so simple. Let me just say this, it's so simple. You look at the cross. You look at the cross that's how you become his slave. You look at the cross and you see that the one you now belong to is the one who went to a cross for you. In your brokenness, you needed rescue. You needed, you needed ransom. And in his love, he didn't just offer that. He offered himself for you. That is your master. He gave himself to you. How can we not give ourselves to him when he gave himself to us? He's unlike any other master. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Christ. Think about these terms that the Bible describes, that we are a people for his possession, that we are not our own. Paul says, and I say this to you today, if you want real life, if you want life and real life, if you want real freedom, if you want real purpose, it's found when you let Jesus be your master and you stop trying to master Jesus, amen? Let him lead you. And so regardless of where you are on that spectrum, let me just simply say this today. Maybe you thought you were following Jesus for years and you, you never actually submitted to slavery. Or maybe today you're just like, I need something different than what I've been trying and I need to, I need to follow Jesus. It's just as simple as saying yes Jesus, I will be your doulos. I needed the cross. I need you to rescue me. And today, I want to follow you. Amen? Amen? Would you guys stand with me? We have a tradition of offering a benediction at the end of our services for those of you that are new, and it's very simple. Um, I'm just going to pray over you as I send you into this week in light of what we've heard. And uh, I just ask that you open your hands to receive as I raise mine over you and offer this to you. May you be men and women who embrace your slavery to Jesus, knowing that he frees you from lesser masters. May you stop trying to master Jesus and allow him to master you. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today.